You guys can take your seats. How are we doing today? Man, anybody blessed by the worship and the worship team today? Anybody? Amen? Amen? Yeah. Y'all golf clapping. By the end, we'll get you running around here. It's where you come in. You come in cold. You leave on fire. You come back cold again. What's happening in between your weeks that make you come in so timid towards Jesus? I, I don't know. We're going to figure it out. We're going to figure it out together. Uh, we are in a series called the One Another Campaign. Uh, we have been looking at uh, the 58 unique One Another statements that you find in the New Testament uh, that are mentioned over 108 times because sometimes you got to say something twice before people get it. Amen? Every parent should have been amening on that one. Sometimes you've got to say it more than twice. It's two times 99 times five. Uh, sometimes you can divide it by two when they become teenagers for a brief moment of hope. Then you've got to multiply it by 100 again because they go stupid again, move back into your house after they went to college. And the college professors, sometimes they're insane. So then, anyway, sometimes you've got to be reminded of things a few times. Uh, one of the great theologians of our time, he said, when it comes to the church letters that you see in Acts all the way through to the end of the New Testament, that there is no letter written to the church apart from the conflict that was going on within the church. Uh, people don't get along, and so sometimes you've got to remember someone other than yourself. You've got to look to some of these one another's. Now, the first one we looked at in week one was this simple one in Philippians chapter two, and it's this idea that you and I have to be intentional about making margin in our time and in our thoughts to be considerate of each other, because the byproduct of us on our natural path is to live lives that are inconsiderate of someone's. That's why we have the marginalized and the oppressed and, and people who are forgotten and on the fringes that often are overlooked. And so the call of the scripture, especially within the context of this community as the people of God, is that we would walk in considering not just ourselves and our needs, but the needs of others. And if we would do that in a church of people considering each other, it would be amazing to experience the kind of fellowship that would happen when you've got the people of God considering each other and not just themselves. So consider one another, Philippians chapter 2. Then over and over again, probably the most frequented statement of the one another's, because all other one another's come out of it, is this call for us to love one another. It seems so simplistic. Like, why are you having to tell us to be loving to each other? Because I've been here long enough to experience how some of you treat each other. And we need to be reminded. I need to be reminded. You need to be reminded that we are to love each other. Not in a transactional love, like you did something I like, therefore I'm going to communicate or do something you like. No, no that's tick for tat. Instead, it is to be covenantal. It is to go first. Love goes first every time. It doesn't wait on the other person to approach them. No, love in action sends us to love our neighbors even when they're unlovely because Jesus loved you in your most unlovely of states. And as a result, he's now captured and captivated us with that love so that it would come through us into the community around us. So we are to love one another, consider one another. We are to encourage one another because discouragement is sold on the streets every day and propagated in every news source that you can find. But we are to be a people of good courage because we know how the story ends and we know that he's reigning. We know that he's ruling, and we know that he will return as King of kings and Lord of lords. And since that is done, it is good season and good reason for us in pandemics or whatever demic you want to call it to encourage and build each other up as we see that day drawing near. I'm preaching good, and I'm not even to the text yet. So we're to encourage one another. We're to serve one another. What does that mean? We're to be people of the towel. We, we, we wash the feet 
of those who are the least. We, we do the jobs that are unpleasant in the name of Jesus and for the glory of Jesus, not for the glory of men or the glory of people, because we are a peculiar people that are marked by the greatest of servants who came not to be served, Mark 10, 45, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for another. We want another in this house. That's what we do. We do it for another. So we don't, we don't just simply live about a consumption culture that, that often we get tied up in in church. Instead, we live in a one another culture that's constantly looking to be a community marked by the Spirit of God and the presence of God for the glory of God so that we would be everything that the Word of God says we are as the church of Jesus Christ. Amen? Now we're going to land the plane today. There's lots of other one another's we could look at, but we're going to get ready for Easter next week, and we're going to start the march to the cross as we look at John chapter 13 all the way up to John chapter 18, which gets us to that cross where your redemption was purchased by the life and sacrifice of Jesus. It's going to be an intense series. Uh, I'm inviting you to look at the cost of your redemption, perhaps, in a way that you've never looked at, in detail that you've never looked at before. And I'm super excited and humbled that God would allow us the opportunity to look at this together as a community, because I believe, like every time the Word of God is open, that it has the potential and the power to change the very direction of our lives forever. So it's going to be a lot of fun, but we've started this year in these one another's because we want to prepare the house to receive the community that's coming into the house. And if we're not ready, we could bring a lot of people in, but everyone's still lonely. Everyone's still isolated. Everyone's still cut off. And so we want to get ready in the house for what God would have us be as the community comes in to fellowship with us. Jesus had a half-brother. Some of you, maybe you don't believe in Jesus, uh, but I would submit to you that none of your siblings have ever uh, confused you with being the son of God. But perhaps one of the greatest apologetics we have in the scripture is the book of James, which is where Jesus' half-brother dies a martyr's death and was the leader of the church of Jerusalem and died confessing that Jesus was the Son of God. He had grown up with Jesus. I mean, he went through puberty with Jesus. And he died saying, this man is not like any other man. This, this man is the Messiah, the promised one of the old Testament. He worshipped his half-brother as the Messiah. It's an interesting apologetic to consider that many of us often have dismissed. Now today's one another comes out of one verse in verse 16 of chapter 5 of the book of James. I want to read it to you and then break it down for a few minutes. James chapter 5 verse 16 it says, confess your sins, or therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power at its working. So therefore, confess your sins and pray for one another. James 5, 16. Now, I love the word therefore. It gives preachers an opportunity to jam in more scripture than they've already given you. Because therefore means prior to this, there's a statement that was made that gives reason for the application that's now coming forth. So prior to this, James has said something that gives reason for you to then get bold enough to go, here's the junk in my closet that I don't talk to anybody about. I want to confess it, not just to God, but to a community of people that could take that, weaponize it, and use it against me. 
But instead, because of something that James has said, there's reason for me to bring it in front of a community so that there may be healing that comes to me. So there's a part of my healing from sin that is tied not just to my vertical confession of sin to God, but my ability to communicate it and share it in a community where it's shouldered amongst other believers around me. Are you tracking with me? Now, what is that there for? What what is the reason that we're to be of that kind of courage? Well, verse 13 begins this uh, section in your Bible called the power of prayer. The power of prayer. Now, prayer is an interesting thing for a lot of us. You've got some of us who are prayer warriors. You love to pray. Your first reaction when you sense the temptation to worry is to bend your knee and to pray. And then there's a lot of us that prayer's always been an evasive idea. It's something we've done. Like, how do you do it right Am I doing it wrong? Is there a wrong way to pray? Is there a right way to pray? Why why is it when they pray, it feels like God's near? And when I pray, it feels like nothing's happening? And and so there's a lot of us that struggle in this area of prayer. But the application of verse 16 depends on your belief in the power of prayer that's mentioned in verse 13. And if you don't believe that prayer is powerful, then there's no reason to come forward and confess your sins to each other because you don't actually believe healing comes through prayer to begin with. Now, I'm not saying that because uh, if I were to ask, how many of you believe in the power of prayer? Everybody like, amen, church, amen, believe in the power of prayer. How many of you bent your knee instead of worried this week over what was going on in your life, though? That, that's where the, the rubber hits the road. You see, for a lot of us, we've sat the whole week in this isolated state of worry, not knowing that worry is a signal that it's time to pray. We, we spent this whole week in our mind in uncertainty, not knowing that that uncertainty, when you don't know the future, because you don't, when you don't know what's going to happen with the health thing going on, because you don't, when you don't have control over time, because you don't, that that is an invitation for you to turn to the one who holds the future, owns time, and created all of it, and has the power to step into it, and already has done it in Jesus, and does it over and over again miraculously through his spirit, still to this day, that, that you turn to him who actually can change what you can't change. Are you tracking with me? Look at, look at verse 13. This is what it says. Are any of you suffering? I would submit to you the answer is yes. That there, are, there are a lot of people in the house. I know, I know you're like, he's asking this question to the church. I get that. But let's ask it to ourselves. Are any of you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Now, here's what I love about the text. The text is essentially saying... That no matter where you're at in life, suffering or celebration, there is a response to God that should be naturally forthcoming from the believer. If you're in the pit, pray. If you're on the pinnacle, praise. But no matter where you're at, let the name of Jesus be coming out of your mouth. That's that's the invitation that we see in James 5.13. It's that prayer is a call to action that we come to regardless of the season of life that we find ourselves in. This invitation and call to action presume your agreement on the need for prayer and your belief in the power of prayer uh, and healing that God can only bring through prayer. And so let me, for some of you, let's just be honest, we are practical atheists when it comes to prayer. We may in words say we believe in the power of prayer, yet we spend less than five minutes a week in prayer. And it's not about the quantity, it's just it, it, it's to be a constant conversation that happens from a believer that loves Jesus and is close to Jesus. First Thessalonians says that we're to pray continually, so it's an ongoing conversation. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who's the, known as the Prince of Preachers, was in London walking with a friend. They were going through the busiest intersection in London, and he just stopped one day. His friend kept walking and talking with him. 
And his friend looked back, not knowing what was going on, kind of like, what, what are you doing back there in the middle of this intersection? And after a moment, Spurgeon lifted his head and kept walking. And his friend, when he got to the other side, said, what was that about? And he said, for a moment, I lost my sense of conversation with God, my sense of prayer. I wanted to stop until I picked it back up and moved forward. I didn't want to take a step without having that kind of fellowship with God. Now, I know you call that weird, but the Bible would call that normal. So your normal version of Christianity may not be biblically normal. And that, that could be a problem. It may be comfortable for you, but it's not normal. And I, I want to be normal biblically, not normal culturally. Making sense? So let me give you a couple of examples of some people uh, that give us reason to believe in the power of prayer in case you don't yet believe in the power of prayer. Let, let me point to a couple of people who... Uh, we could use their witness to give us courage in maybe the place of doubt in our own prayer life. First, let's look at the author, Jesus' half-brother James. Uh, I've got a picture of him. I think it's more of a European version of him. They now have an app on Instagram where you can see what culture you would look like if you were from a different ethnic background. So you can look at like a Russian version of you and a Chinese version of you. So I think this is European James. <laughs> James was Jewish and from the Middle East. Anyway, but for nonetheless, there he is, James, Jesus' half-brother and leader of the church of Jerusalem that suffered and went through a ton of hardship. Now, Eusebius was a Jewish historian, and it's noted in his notes that James earned the nickname Camel Knees because of how swollen his knees were from hours of prayer and praise. In fact, the reason he's believed to have been martyred is that he, they knew where he was going to be when they were trying to kill him. They wanted to kill him because he told uh, at this council in Jerusalem, he determined that the Gentile Christians didn't have to follow the ancient Jewish laws in order to be accepted into fellowship, which made the Jewish people who were more about their uh, cultural background than they were about bibli being biblically faithful in the new covenant walking with Jesus, it made them upset to really want to kill him because they were losing their tradition. Not that that happens in the American church today. They knew where to find him. He was on his knees praying because his knees were worn from being in prayer to God. How much does the writer of James 5.16 believe in the power of prayer? Well, his knees bared the marks of how much he believed in the power of prayer. And he was affected physically because of the amount of prayer that he was praying. Now, many of you have heard of athletes who later in life were crippled from the impact of sports on their bodies. I played two years of collegiate basketball against large people who I think came from Goliath's background. My back hurts because of two years of college basketball. My ankle, I sprained it three and a half weeks ago. It still is the size of a small softball, and it will not heal because of how many times I've rolled it through basketball. Like, I, I hurt. I go to CrossFit now, and in my 20s, I would do CrossFit. There's no problem. Like, yeah, let's bear crawl. Let's do some more of these devil press things. Like, yeah, I mean, like, just, just kill it. And, and, and now I go twice a week, and I crawl the rest of it. <laughs> I bear the marks and the pains of what I've done physically in sports. One of my favorite uh, singers is a guy named Steven Tyler from a band called Aerosmith. Any of you ever heard of Aerosmith? Pink is my new obsession. Okay, okay. I, I, in sixth grade, went and saw Aerosmith with my cool aunt, Aunt Peggy. She drove us in her station wagon up to Charlotte, North Carolina, to the amphitheater so that we could see Aerosmith. We waited in three hours of traffic. 
Uh, by the time we got there, the show was supposed to already be an hour in, but Aerosmith was in the traffic with us. That was cool. They performed for three and a half hours, and that dude moves like no white man I've ever seen before. He's done it for so many years that his feet now look like this. I want you to see this. Too much dancing. This is why Footloose was a law. Your parents were trying to keep your feet from being turnt. He, he got too turnt on his Never mind, I should stop. Okay. Here's my point. He has been a rock and roll guy, and he's done it well for so long that his body bears the marks of it. Now, now here, here's what I'm getting. There, there's a spiritual point here. <laughs> I want to have physical impairment from the way that I praise and worship God. I, I know that's stupid, and you're saying, like, that's weird. I, I, it's like Jesus heals everybody. I, I get that, but, but my, my point is, I want to preach hard. I want to worship in such a way that, that the things that ail me later in life are not the sport career, are not the rock and roll stuff, but I'm a worshiper of God. I want to bend my knees so much and spend so much time here worshiping God that my knees begin to suffer physical pain because my spirit is so longing to be vertically connected to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I, if I'm going to bear like markings, pain in the future, let it be out of worship of God, not out of just getting flattery from men, not, not out of building a platform to be worshipped on by others. You see, this is the beauty. James believed in the power of prayer so much that his knees were swollen. What a blessed mark. Now, on top of that, there's this guy that came along later, and he was one of the greatest preachers of his era. His name was John of Antioch. He's also known as Chrysostomo. And he took the time to build together everything that the Scriptures teach about what prayer did. And so this quote, everything you're about to see in it, involves statements straight from the Scripture, witnesses from the Scripture about what prayer has done. So maybe you're not on, on page with me on the power of prayer, but think about this. It says, the potency of prayer has subdued the strength of fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Notice God didn't take out the fire. God didn't take down the pagan king. He put them in it, but he put Jesus in it with them. The power of prayer subdued fire. It has bridled the rage of lions, a.k.a. Daniel. Uh, it has hushed anarchy to rest. That was King David. It's extinguished wars. It's appeased the elements. It's expelled demons. It's burst the chains of death. It's expanded the fates of heaven. It's uh, that diseases. It's, <laughs> it's dispelled frauds, and it's rescued cities from destruction. Oh, we're not done. It's stayed the sun in its course, Joshua, and arrested the progress of the thunderbolt. There is in it an all-sufficient panoply, a, a treasure undiminished, a mind which is never exhausted, a sky obscured by clouds, a heaven unruffled by the storm. It is the root, the fountain, the mother of a thousand blessings. Many of you spent a lot of time this week researching how you were going to survive whatever you're going through. But you didn't go to the unlimited resource of prayer in the presence of God. You see, it's in the presence of God that life gets changed, that answers come. I had a friend, and she's a missionary in Africa, and she said the difference between, you and the, uh, between us and the American church is we pray until God moves, you pray, and then hope God moves. 
And for us, we, we've got to get back to the fact that prayer is an active engagement with God, and we should expect that God, being a loving father, doesn't dismiss his children, but answers his children, meets with his children, fellowships with his children. He's not not answering the prayer because he doesn't want you near him. He perhaps is not answering that prayer because what you need is to be close to him, and prayer is keeping you by his side. So keep Praying because it's about being in the presence that may be the very essential need of your life. So everything that comes in verse 16 presupposes that you and I actually believe that prayer works, that prayer is powerful, that prayer is essential. And if you don't believe that prayer is powerful and essential, then chances are you're never going to do something scary like confess your sins to one another. Because why would I want you to pray for something if I don't believe that prayer works and risk the gossip and risk the weaponization of you having something on me that you could tell others to keep me back or make me not save face? So since prayer is powerful, confess your sin. That's the text. Since prayer is powerful, confess your sin. Now, confession is to speak up about what is most unspeakable about your life. It's to speak up about what's most unspeakable about your life. Many of you, you'll talk about 90%, but you got about 10 that you want no one to know about. And confession is about that margin. Whatever it is, it may be 70%, and then you keep 30% to yourself. Maybe you're a big mouth like me, so it's like 98%, and you got 2% to yourself because you just talk all the time. You're like, well, I just said that. I can't believe I just told them that. Well, they know it now. But there's still 2% that you keep in. Confession is about you getting the things that dishonor God, the things that keep you from confidence in your identity in Christ, it's about getting those things out into the light. So the call is confess your sins, which hints at this other Christian word called repentance. Repentance. Repentance is about an about face. You see, repentance is you having walked in one singular direction with one goal and one aim, putting your back on that because something greater has invited you to a new journey and a new path. See, it's moving from one direction to another. We, before Jesus, all walked in sin with our face set on death and our back set to God. But Jesus provides the means for us to turn our face towards God the Father by Jesus, led by the Spirit, and our back now can be lived towards sin and death. So we no longer walk towards it, but we walk towards God who is life. We no longer walk towards hate and getting one back on people because we now walk to the God who is love and is freely forgiven and offers forgiveness to all people. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 8 speaks to this. It says, for once you were full of darkness, but, and you got, I mean, Pastor Austin asked for it. Here it is. Last week he wanted me to preach the big butts of the Bible. This is a big but, okay? You once were full of darkness, but Now, you, who's the you? It's those who are in Jesus, not by their own merits, not by their own works, but by the grace of God, they become something brand new. By the grace and mercy of God, they aren't what they used to be. You, in Christ, have light from the Lord. So live as people of the light. Now, let let me be very clear. Many people read that and they're like, so we need to do better things. We We need to try harder. No, no, no. You have to understand that life is now to be lived in the light and not in the darkness. What we get in the grace of Jesus is we get to come out of hiding. I know because you hear that and you're like, I've been in church and I came out of hiding once for like five seconds and they couldn't handle it. The Christian life is a life in the light. It's a life that refuses to be marked by darkness. But 
It's an experience that the majority of us as believers rarely ever have. Like, like healing repentance. Repentance that, that brings a restoration with it. It's something that many of us speak of, but we never experience personally. And I want you to experience the freedom that comes when you confess your sin within the context of a community. Now let me warn you, repentance is costly. It's costly. It's costly first because it took Jesus' life and blood to present you the opportunity. Many of you think you have a right to repent. No, no, no. There's no right apart from the blood of Jesus for you to even turn towards God. If he didn't love you first and paved the way for you to come to God, then there's, there's no opportunity to turn around. So it took his very life for you to have the right to walk in the light, yet many of us are okay with doing what Satan does, and that's some days in the light and some days in the dark. Presenting ourselves before God on Sunday, but living in darkness on Monday and Tuesday. This is not the way of the believer. We have been called to walk in the light even when it's uncomfortable, even when it causes us not to be able to save face, even when it makes us look needy, like we need others or we need God and his grace around us. It's costly. Jesus' life and death paid the path for it. It's costly, number two, because it demands healthy humiliation before others. And some of you don't like that word. I told you a couple weeks ago, my biggest goal is not to build your self-confidence, it's to build your God-confidence. I, I, I am not in the game of you being confident in yourself apart from Christ. I am in the game of you growing and how strong you are when you stand on the rock that is Jesus in your identity, in your gifting, in your living, in, in your breathing. That's what I want to build up because that other stuff is broken and passing away. You in and of yourself apart from Jesus, that's burn up in the fire. What comes on the other side of the the fire is what is founded in, funded by, supplied by the work of Jesus in your life. So I want great God confidence in the house of God. I want us to be a people that are marked by the presence and the ongoing work of God. But it costs a healthy humiliation where we admit that we have failed God often more than we ever think that we could. You see, many of us, we ridicule Peter for denying Jesus, yet for many of you, you denied him all week. Then the worship team comes out on fire, ready to worship Jesus, and you're like, I don't know that I can worship yet because you don't understand grace and unmerited love. So it takes three songs for you to get your hands from here to like here to worship God. Because your identity is still built on yourself and not on God. Does this make sense? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a martyr in World War II. He wrote one of the best books in all of Christian history apart from the Bible in The Cost of Discipleship. If you've never read it, it's a phenomenal book. He died a martyr's death, uh, hung from the gallows for his faith because Christianity is always a threat to a government system that seeks to suppress a group and oppress a group of people because the book of the Bible has always been a book that reaches the marginalized and costs the oppressed to a freedom that cannot be marked by temporal time. And that's a dangerous thing whenever you're trying to control people within the context of time. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this in his book, Life Together, Confession in the presence of a brother is the profoundest kind of humiliation. And this is good. Listen, it hurts. It cuts a man down. It's a dreadful blow to pride. To stand there before a brother as a sinner is an anomaly that is almost unbearable. In the confession of concrete sins, that's the key. Many of us, we're like, oh, I do that, I do that. What did you tell them? Did you tell them that the marriage was really falling apart? Did you tell them how many times you looked at porn last week? Were you honest? Did you tell them about the bitterness that you won't let go and the unforgiveness you're holding on in your heart and you don't know how to let go of it? Or did you just say, I'm fine? 
Because that's church clothes. We don't wear church clothes up in this place. No. Confession isn't church clothes. Confession is not like I'm saving face. I had a friend, my first accountability partner. I know this is crude and crass, but I'm just going to be honest with you. He looked at me. This changed my life. And he said, Russ, when we get together, you can either save your face or you can save your ass. But you've got to determine which one because we can't do both. I, I get that that's, that's offensive, but I, I mean it to jar you. Because some of you are more worried about saving face than you are about being healed. I'd rather look together, I'd rather look like, every, like a good Christian than, than to get concrete about the fact that there is this pervasive, consistent sin that week after week kicks my behind, and I can't seem to get over it, and I can't seem to quit it, and I don't even know if there's hope for me that I can overcome the thing, but I'm, I'm reading the scripture, and the scripture says confess your sin, and there's some kind of healing tied to it, and I've not tried it, and I'm so humiliated and angry about what I'm doing that I'll try anything to not do it anymore, so here it is. Here's my 2%. Here's my 10%. Here's the junk I don't want to talk about because I don't want it keeping me from everything Jesus has for me. So I'm going to bring it forward and out. And that's the beauty of what we have in our fellowship. It's concrete. It's direct. Concrete sins in the old man dies a painful death and shameful death before the eyes of the brother. And this is the invitation that you and I have. It's this invitation to pay the cost of healthy humiliation so that we can walk in restoration before God. The last thing I want you to see about the cost of repentance of confessing your sins is that repentance is common for the Christian. It's common. What's uncommon is having church services with an open Bible and the Word being taught and coming to the end and being non-responsive. What's common in a move of God with the people that long for the Word of God and want to see the application of that word is that when we hear it, and in grace, God doesn't condemn us, but he convicts us. Condemnation's from the enemy. Condemnation tells you you're rejected, that you can't be received, that you need to do something to pay penance for what you've done. Conviction is it's already been paid for, and Jesus is inviting you to a new way of living. So conviction comes to invite you, not dismiss you. And in hearing by the word of God, the conviction, we flood the altar, not for the preacher, not for a manipulated move of God, but because God's moving in us and we're responsive people to the shepherding hand of the Father. And so we bend our knee. We, we admit our wrongs. We confess our sins freely. We, we don't have to be goaded into it. It doesn't take an Easter service every year for us to get up the courage to admit our need of Jesus. No, no that's, an easy, uh, that's an easy thing to confess. I need you. I need you every day, every hour, every moment. Here's my point. Confess your sin to one another and pray for one another. Now, this is where the bump in the road comes. Confess your sin to one another and pray for one another because there are three groups of believers that are in this room right now, those that profess to be followers of Jesus. Number one, there's this confess to nobody group. We're going to talk about that briefly in just a second. You don't talk to anybody about your 2%, your 10%, whatever it is that you don't want to talk about. I call you the keep it in her. And, and, and I'll be honest, you tell on yourself more than you know when I stand on this stage. Because I watch you try to keep it together. <laughs> I remember I had a friend when we were in California. We were planting the church. We were meeting in an uh, 
old freestanding Montgomery Ward that had a casino underneath this. Tell me Jesus can only move in specific places. And, and so you would hear like they had a taco bar and Hispanic karaoke going on down below. And the worship team started. And this guy had a friend that was running from God, had been running from God for a long time. And he couldn't even stand up because he was just trying to keep it together. And he looked up at his friend, and I'm quoting, he said, Blank you for bringing me here. By the end of service, he stood up and he just loses it. He's just trying to keep it together. He, he didn't want an encounter with the living God. He just wanted a good sermon, a pat on the back, uh, a, a ritual or an a application point that he could go and apply that wouldn't require dependency upon God or the Holy Spirit for it to come to fruition in his life. You see, repentance is common. You who are in Christ are free. You are loved with a love that cannot be lost by peril, mistakes, setbacks, or addictions. We are invited because of Jesus, convicted by the Holy Spirit, uh, to come boldly into the presence of the Father. And it is unreasonable to sit in sin that desires to isolate and destroy you when you have been healed and called by Jesus for his purpose. So we're called to confess our sins to one another, which means we confess and we don't keep it in. But some of you are the keep it inners. Number two, you've got to confess to God only. Some of you are like, well, I appreciate it, Pastor, but in case you didn't know, we're not Catholic around here, and I don't need a mediator between me and God. All right, Thunder, let's talk about it for a minute. You ready for this? Because James 5.16 is in your Bible, your Protestant Bible. It's in the Catholic Bible, too, by the way. And here's my point in bringing it up. Many of you are like, I confess my sin to God. Why do I need to talk to somebody else about it? Well, Psalm 32, verse 5 it says this. We're going to skip ahead a little bit. Psalm 32, verse 5. Let me read that. Stop. Go back to verse. Yeah, I like that. Go back. When you keep it in, this is what happens. When I refuse to confess my sin, my body wasted away. Not preacher's words. That's the Bible. I want to make sure everybody can see it. When I refuse to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long, day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. The Lord disciplines those he loves. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Verse 4. Uh, yeah, I had verse 4. Finally, yeah, go ahead. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you. Confess them to God. And stop trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. And you forgave me and all my guilt was Gone. Now let me be very clear. Jesus alone absolves us of sin. Confessing your sin within a community does not forgive you of your sin. It is the blood of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus that gives us forgiveness. No person other than Jesus can deliver you from sin's bondage and can deliver you from the chains of addiction. It is Jesus that is the bondage, uh, that is the chain breaker, that is the deliverer in our lives. No person can pay for the penalty of sin. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 is extremely clear about this. For there is only one God and one mediator. Who can reconcile God and humanity? The man, Christ Jesus. So he's our high priest, he's our mediator. And all of that good theology is written with James 5, 16 in context. So the question comes, if I'm confessing my sin to God, what am I missing out by not confessing it to my community? What am I missing out? Well, the text says healing. So, so what does that mean? What does that even look like? Well, restoration is a journey. And God gives us the church as the community to accompany us on that journey. So you are, by Jesus, in Christ, 
absolutely forgiven. Your sin is as far as the east is from the west. Positionally, in Christ, you are held as righteous and saints and new creations in Christ Jesus. You are not defined by what you've done, but you're defined by what you're becoming in Him. This is the beauty of the gospel. That is all His work. However, Though you are positionally righteous, many of us still are walking in the path of unrighteousness, and I need a community that I can get in front of, sometimes in a humiliating state, and say, look, I I can't believe I'm still here. I can't believe I circled back to that. I don't even know how this became a good idea in my mind, but I walked back into that. I did that again. I let my family down again. I was not a good parent and disciplined in anger that I'm embarrassed that's still within me again. And I don't know why I keep doing it, and I don't know why I'm bringing it up, because it doesn't seem like a lot's changing, but I see the Bible, and I, I, I believe it's true, so I just want to tell you, I need you to pray. Notice what it says. Confess your sins and pray. Not confess your sins and get advice. Confess your sins and poll. No. The power is in prayer, not just advice, prayer. We pray before we advise. Many of us in Christian circles, we advise before we pray, and that's why we got so many problems. No, we pray before we advise. So I confess my sins to you, and the call is then we pray for each other in that moment, and healing comes. Why? Because I'm known and I'm not alone. Why? Because I have community that's walking around me mirroring to me the covenantal love of Jesus that I don't believe I deserve. Giving me an ear that I don't believe should hear. Giving me a presence that I feel like because of my actions, perhaps I betrayed and don't belong in the presence of. You see, restoration is a journey, and it's a journey that is meant to be communal. So what does that look like at Four Points Church? Because isn't that cute? I talked about confessing your sins to each other, and you're going to go home and do nothing with it. What does it look like at Four Points Church. That's why we created groups. Because what we're going to do in a few weeks in groups, as you've built trust, so you're like, this was a trap. Yeah, it was a trap. (laughs) You're playing checkers, we're playing chess, all right? What what you're going to do in a few weeks in group is at the end of the night, you're going to want another in the beginning. You're going to study some content through Right Now Media in the middle. And then you're going to split up in the groups that are small enough for you to get honest enough, boys with boys, girls with girls, and you're going to confess your sin and pray for each other. And that's going to be common weekly in this church. So we're like, well, this ain't my church. Easter's coming. There's other churches you can sit, plop, pray, and pay. I, I don't need you to sit, plop, pray, and pay. This is a movement not an entertainment industry. I'm not here to cater to you. I'm here to help you identify who you are in Jesus and walk. Look, look, I'm, I'm serious. I'm serious. I just feel like, that's just church speaking until you got to close the doors. No, no, no. I, it, look, I, I've already had to deal with that question. If everything broke down, what would I do? Guess what I would do? I would find some people, and I would one another with them, and I would proclaim the gospel to them, and I would share and confess my sins with them so that we could walk towards becoming the people that God has called us to be in whatever context we're in. It's not conducive to whether or not the church is growing or not growing or what what helps us get big or notarized in the community. I could care less about that. I want to be marked by the presence of God and the Spirit of God, and that comes to the application of the Word of God in our lives. And so we're just going to do it. We're going to try it. So you're like, well, what if it goes wrong? It may. It may. 
Like, like you may confess your sin, like the, the real stuff, and other people will stay guarded and closed. And you're like, I know something's going on. I was a pastor in California when this idea came to me. So I walked into my community group and said, tonight we're breaking up. And they're like, what, breaking up? I'm like, yeah, into groups. And we're going to confess our sin, and we're going to pray. And people looked at me like, you're looking at me now. So we got back there, and it was, what do you think it was? It was surface. I'm doing pretty good. Yeah. Read my Bible once last year. Prayed. Thought about praying. Made a plan to pray. Got a committee together. We talked about praying some, reading the Bible. We we didn't do it, but we, we, we thought about it. So surface. And I was so angry and frustrated, and, and I felt alone. Most, pe- most preachers do. Feel alone. You feel alone. No, let me let you know. Your preacher often feels alone. You know why? Because I, I am not your mediator. I'm not a savior. I'm not the perfect example of Christianity. Like my son and his basketball, I almost lost it on a referee. I, 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 you know, I, I screw up. I do dumb things consistently more frequently than I'm comfortable with admitting. And here, here's, my, here's my point. I, I went home one night before group, and I was just frustrated, and I caught myself in the wrong place at the wrong time, scrolling through Instagram stories, and popped up, almost in satanic timing, uh, a story of a girl dancing in a way that was very provocative. And I let it loop. I don't even know how many times it looped. But I just sat there in it, and I was like, look, they're all lying. I'm not, I don't need to talk about this. So I got into confession time with this group that's been guarded against me. And we're not going anywhere with it. And I, I felt the Lord go, so are you going to practice what you preach or not? <laughs> and so I look around the room and I'm like, I'm going to go first. And they're like, okay. You know, what's a preacher got to confess? And I'm like, guys, I am so embarrassed, but just an hour ago, I watched a video that set a thought off in between my ears, and I'm afraid of where that thought could take my mind later tonight when my family's asleep. And I don't want to go there, but I can't stay in the darkness of this battle and win that battle whenever I get home. So I need you to know that I am on the verge of sin. It is crouching at my door, and I don't want it to come to fruition in my life. And I need you to pray because I don't want to fall. And that room changed. Every man became coming forward with all of it. And I'm not just talking just about pornography or lust. I'm talking just love of money, indifference towards family, like just confessing it. And you know what began to happen? This became really common. Putting arms on each other and getting shoulder to shoulder. And sh- this became normal, not abnormal. This wasn't a once-in-a-lifetime experience. It was a weekly experience. Our group grew like wildfire. You know why? Because the presence of God came and the calling of confession of sin and moved in a powerful way. Our group changed overnight. It is my job at Four Points Church to be the lead repenter. But my goal in my repentance before you is that we set a culture that normalizes repentance among us. So church, repent. You are children of the light. Do not walk in darkness. 
Sin may describe a season of your life, but it no longer defines the future of your life. Repent. His grace is really sufficient for you and for me. So come on, house. Repent. Confess your sin. Our prayer team's going to be here in the front. If you need to confess, go. If you need to bend your knee before God, go. If you need to bring someone to the altar and go, look, I don't even know how to say it. I can't get it out. I need you to pray that I can have the courage to get what's holding me in bondage out into the light because I know that he's forgiven me and I know that he desires to break me free of it. But you move. Repent. Guys, this will change our church. This will change our church. Because when you get a people that bend their knees, not at the pleading of a preacher, but at the move of the Spirit, man, this will take over and move. So you move as the Lord leads, and let's become a house where we confess our sins because he has forgiven us to one another so that we may be healed. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. You move.